0: Let me introduce myself. My name is Mike. Uh, I think I've bumped into a number of you before, but I'm a member here at Fellowship. I'm on the elder team here as well. And I am delighted uh, to have been invited to make a contribution to our summer series in the Psalms. Uh, It's been fun to hear from a few new voices uh, over the last few weeks. We heard from uh, Jeff Helton a couple weeks ago. We heard from Larry Kayser, one of our other elders here and the head of our marriage ministry. That was cool. Prior to him, we heard from Rubel Shelley, uh, as he uh, spoke to us after we wrapped up our series on James. A couple weeks from now, you're gonna have Bill Wellens. So you got lots of different voices, some new perspectives, some new people opening up the word for us, which is great. Um, we have very talented uh, teaching pastors. We, uh, Lloyd and Rob are phenomenal expositors of the word, but like everyone else, they enjoy a little bit of a break over the summer, and so we're glad to give it to them. And I am honored to be able to contribute to this uh, series on the Psalms. Just so you know, the directive we were all given if we were invited to teach was pick a psalm that's made a mark on you. Choose any psalm you want, but put together a sermon on a psalm that has impacted you in some way. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. I'm going to be taking a look at one of the psalms with you that's had a really big impact in my life. Um, when you read the psalms, you can't read very far without finding that they're, they're almost unusually transparent. They're very vulnerable, and they're very direct. You, it's a collection of prayers or utterances towards God. And a lot of them are very authentic. Like, Lord, I'm surrounded by my enemies, and they're making a mockery of me, and in doing so, they're making a mockery of you. Why don't you just deal with these people, get it over with? right? People are very forthcoming in their prayers in the Psalms. And I love that transparency. Uh, It's in the spirit of that transparency that I want us to open up our Bible to Psalm 32 uh, or your device, click, click to Psalm 32 if that's what you have in hand. Before we get there, I want to set up my own uh, sort of segue into this by being a little bit authentic with you. Um, I've had times in my life where it was uncomfortable for me to walk through the doors of a church. I became a believer when I was 21 years old. I'm 45 now. Um, But prior to my 21st birthday I had done a lot of things that I was ashamed of, that I regretted, that I was downright embarrassed to acknowledge. And I had formed a number of habits in my pre-Christian days that quite frankly were hard to shake off in my Christian days. Uh, Some of this muscle memory was pretty firmly entrenched if you know what I'm saying. And I had times throughout my Christian journey were to walk through the back doors of a church into the sanctuary was somewhat disquieting to my soul. I felt like I was in a place that I shouldn't be. Now that wasn't because the people in the church were judgmental or they would make me feel unwelcome to be here, it was more a very clear sense of guilt as to what I was experiencing internally. This list of stuff that I had done in my life and these uh, journeys into sin that I was willfully choosing to go down, uh, that made it difficult for me to be in a church at times. And I felt like when I walked in here, sometimes I felt like a phony. And there's been times in my 24 years walking with Christ when I would tell you I've gone through prolonged periods of not living well, of not walking well. And walking in the front doors of a church when you're living that way is... Well, let's just say it's somewhat disquieting to the soul. And I know I'm not alone when I speak of this. We're going to open up our Bibles in just a moment to Psalm 32, and we're going to see that this is a psalm written by a guy named David. We find David a lot throughout the psalms. He's authored many of them. And Psalm 32 that we're going to look at here in just a bit is a psalm about guilt. It's about shame and embarrassment. And as any of you know, uh, David is very well acquainted with these emotions. Because while the Bible refers to him as a man who was after God's own heart, we also know that David committed adultery with a married woman, with Bathsheba. And their little tryst resulted in a pregnancy and a child. And when David discovered this news, he ordered the murder of her husband. So here's a man who's after God's own heart who not only commits adultery, the wife who's not his, but then he orders the husband of this woman murdered. Yeah, this guy understands guilt. This guy understands embarrassment and shame, but you'll see in this psalm that he also understands the forgiveness that's available on the other side of this when you make amends with God. And he's gonna communicate all of this to us through Psalm 32 this morning. Before we dive in, I wanna look at one word and uh, just speak about it a little bit. It's gonna show up a couple times in this psalm. It's a word we're all familiar with. We find it all throughout the Bible. But some of us don't know what it means. The word is blessed. What does the word blessed mean? God wants all of his people to be blessed. Well, I looked this up this week, and it sort of surprised me. The translation, the easiest translation for the word blessed is simply this, happy. To be blessed is to be happy you might be thinking, wow, Mike, that's profound scholarship. That was really, that was really deep. Right? There should be some four-syllable Hebrew word that means, that translates blessed. Nope. There's no need to overcomplicate this one. The translation for blessed is simply happy, to be truly happy. Now, there is one small nuance to this word, and it's this. Uh, to be blessed is not just to be truly happy, but it's to be truly happy in a way such that others envy you. They look at you and say, man... He is so happy, he is so blessed, he communes so closely with God, I want what that person has. That's the idea of blessed. That's what God wants for our life, that people look upon us with such a deep and authentic happiness that people want what we've got. Now with that in mind, let's go to verse one in Psalm 32. David says this, he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are covered. I love the word transgress. It means to tear off or to break away. The Bible shows us in here, this is kind of a manual for how to live your life well. The Bible shows us all throughout this book how to live our lives. But what do we do? We break away. We tear off from this standard of conduct. Now please note in verse one, it doesn't say blessed is the man who has never broken off. Why does it not say that? because there's no one like that except for Christ, right? It says, blessed is the man whose transgression has been forgiven and whose sins are covered. Verse two says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Deceit has the idea of being less than forthcoming, of hiding something, of not being transparent, of covering up. Right? So when he says, blessed is the man in whom there is no deceit, he's saying, I'm blessing the people who have put it all out in the open. Right? When you say, I don't have anything to hide. All of my sins are acknowledged. All of my sins are brought to bear. There is nothing hidden from God. On the flip side, however, we've got verse 3. David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Well, before we get into what verse three means, I want to talk about Selah. Uh, Similar to the word blessed, you can't find, you can't travel very far throughout the Psalms without finding this word Selah. What on earth does it mean? Well, Selah, my friends, uh, you Nashvilleites who will like this, Selah is a musical term. You've got to remember that a lot of these psalms were actually sung originally. And Selah implies simply this. Selah means take a break. The thought has been completed. And before we move on to the next point, let's just dwell on this thought for a moment. Now, I don't know about you, but I personally could do for a little more Selah in my life. I feel like I very quickly move from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing very quickly. And I don't pause and take time to reflect on what I've just heard or what I've just learned because I feel like I'm very quickly moving on to the very next thing. I feel as a culture, we're susceptible to this. Selah says, let's take a second and just dwell on what we've heard. Let's meditate on this for a moment before we move on. I like that. Now, David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Do you remember those times in your life when you were rebelling against God? When you were willfully engaging in sin that you know was an offense to God? If you're like me, when you did those things, you kind of tended to try to hide from God when you did it and after you did it. You didn't want to confront the reality of the separation you just created between yourself and a holy God. And sort of like Adam and Eve in the garden, right, when they took the fruit, And God walked through the Garden of Eden. He said, where are you? Adam and Eve were hiding from God because they were aware of their sin. Now, the notion that we can hide from a God who knows all and sees all, it's kind of nonsensical, isn't it? But that's kind of our jerk reaction. That's kind of our gut response is to try to hide from the authority figure in our life when we know we've done wrong. My daughters were in the third row this morning in the 8 o'clock service, and I brought up an analogy that they didn't love, but I'm going to share it with you anyways. When they were just before two years of age, and they were beginning to get ready for potty training, we knew they were ready because when they would, uh, the time would come to load their diaper, they would hide behind the couch to do it. Why would they hide behind the couch? I didn't tell them, go around the couch if you're gonna load your diaper. No, they had a sense of shame and embarrassment that they were going in their diaper when there's this device over there called a toilet that they now kinda know they should be using. Why were they hiding behind the couch? They were ashamed. I didn't teach that. That was hardwired into them. You see, when we do something where where we know we've offended our authority, when we've disobeyed in some way and we're conscious of it, there's something in us that tells us that we need to keep our distance from God because we can't talk to him right now without addressing this rather uncomfortable issue so we try to put it off. We try to avoid confronting him or talking to him about it. He knows I sinned. I know I sinned. He saw it when it happened but in our hearts we say, Let me just keep my distance right now because I don't like how this feels. Guys, we've all been there. We've all been in a spot where we're embarrassed or ashamed of what we've done and as a result of that, we're apprehensive to come before God because we're mindful of the shame that we feel. And I can speak to you from a first-person experience. I know exactly how this feels. I know what it's like to walk into the doors of this church and feel like, man, I don't even belong here. But what David tells us when this happens to someone who's a follower of God is this. He said, it felt like my bones were wasting away inside of me. David said, it felt like your hand was heavy upon me, pressing me down. I was drained as in the heat of summer. For some of you this morning, this isn't looking back on five years ago. I remember back in that, that period of time, yeah, back in like about 2014 when I was rebelling against God. Mike, I remember how that felt back then. Some of you are like, yeah, back around Christmas time I had this thing I was kind of stuck on. Uh, I remember what it was like to feel distant from God at that time. Some of you in the room this morning, this is your present reality. This is how you're living right now, today. You are feeling a separation from God in this room. And you came into church this morning and you tried to sing. But the words, for some reason, you had a hard time getting them out. And you know what's going on in your life because of that sin that you engaged in willfully, intentionally, perhaps repetitively. God knows it too. But you're doing your best to fool everybody around you. You might be fooling your friends. You might be fooling your spouse or those that are closest to you. You might be fooling your fellowship group that you see every Sunday. But you know as well as I do that you saw it. God certainly saw it and you know deep in here that you're spiritually sick right now, that you're not well. You guys, every single week, people come into this room right here and fake it. Every single week. They don't let go of their sin. They drag it around behind them like a ball and chain, and it just wears on them. Yeah, you may be putting on that plastic smile to try to cover it up, to try to make sure no one's onto your scent, Hey, how's it going this week? Oh, it's going great. But you know that it's not. Guys, I've been that person. I know exactly what that feels like. I've been there. And I remember in those seasons of my life where I'd come to church and I'd be like, oh man, I hope the Lord doesn't come back today. And I gotta tell you, that's an awful thing to feel. I think for the Christian, that is the most difficult feeling to process, is when you know you are living at odds with how you are wired to live. You need to know that this gnawing in your conscience, this torment that David felt that he describes in this psalm, it's actually a good thing. In fact, I pray for this in my life. And you need to know that this morning I prayed for it in yours as well. You see, if you're walking this road, if you're living a lie right now because you're engaged in habitual sin and you haven't confessed it, you haven't confronted it with the Lord, you haven't dealt with it with him, if you're living this lie right now and hiding from the God that made you with unconfessed sin, guys, I prayed you wouldn't be able to sleep tonight. I prayed this reality would absolutely torture you until you deal with it. You can thank me later. I remember when I was in this spot, I had memories of blessedness. I remembered what it was like to walk with the Lord, how sweet that intimacy was with Christ. And then if you're like me, you're you're something like, man, I was walking so well with the Lord, and, and then this thing happened, and all of a sudden now that spiritual intimacy is gone. I know the peace I used to feel. I know how sweet it used to be. I look at others and I see how close they are with God, but I know that's not my present reality. All I feel now is this space, this quiet, this distance between me and God. Well, guys, if you're like David in this situation, you need to pray that you'd have a Davidic moment. You see, David said, when I felt like this, when I had this unconfessed sin in my life, I felt like I was going to die. David said, I felt like my bones were disintegrating inside of me. And you need to know, as a Christian, That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. You see, what you may or may not know is that when you pray the sinner's prayer to receive Christ, to invite Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, the Holy Spirit literally comes in and he dwells within you. He literally takes up residence within your soul. And when that happens, you become kind of a slave to what's right. You have to do what is right at that time, otherwise you feel beaten internally. We've all felt it. We've all been there do I think there's a worse feeling in the world for a Christian than this guilt that you carry when you know you're living in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord. This lack of peace will absolutely consume you. But then there's verse five. David says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The NASB says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse five says, I finally acknowledged it. In your prayers to the Lord, you may have been comfortable confessing this. I'm comfortable, Lord, addressing this. I'll even address this with you. But there's this part of you over here that only you know about and only he knows about. Your spouse doesn't even know this about you. Your best friend doesn't know know this about you. You're very comfortable confessing this but all of us have this dark side. All of us do. And what David's saying in verse five is I confessed my sin before the Lord. And note what it says in verse five. Does it say I confessed my sin and then God tortured me for a while? God made me pay dearly for it? Does it say that God made me do some penance, feed the orphans, clothe the widows, and then maybe, just maybe I'll forgive you? It doesn't say that. It says, I confessed my sin and you forgave me. That was it. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David says, I confessed my sin to you and you forgave the guilt of my sin. My friends, it was the guilt that you carried that kept you out of the throne room of grace. It is the embarrassment and the shame that comes with that transgression that keeps you out of God's presence. And when you confess it, God forgives the guilt of your sin. Now, I'm not pretending this is an easy process. I'm not pretending this is an easy thing to do. We all, as humans, have a tendency to put off that which is hard, especially when we know that we've harmed a relationship, right? Most of us, I might be overstating, many of us, come from upbringings where we didn't see conflict modeled very well. We didn't see our parents or those close to us resolve conflict very well, and so when there's relational strain, I grew up in a house where I didn't see my parents deal with it. They fought for a while, they ignored each other, and they swept it under the rug. They never resolved it. Next Next time the conflict came up, it was an even bigger conflict. Oh, let's just sweep that under the carpet, right? And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then soon it's an explosion. Unresolved conflict is like unresolved cancer. It doesn't go away. If you're in a relationship where you've ignored relational repair with your spouse, with your kids, with a sibling, you've just ignored it, you've kind of swept it under the carpet, my question for you this morning is this, how's that working for you? Probably not very well. My friends, it's the same with the Lord. And if you're a person who struggles to resolve conflict in a healthy way, I've got two tips for you, two pieces of advice I wanna share with you. If you're a note taker, number one is this, keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with God. What do I mean by that? I mean, make amends quickly, right? As soon as you have transgressed, as soon as you are mindful or aware of a way that you've offended the Lord, deal with it with God quickly. Don't put it off to tomorrow, to next week, to next month, to allow that decay, to erode your relationship with Christ. Deal with it as soon as it happens. Bite the bullet. Now, I was trying to think of an analogy to help drive this home and I thought about this. This might feel stupid to some of you. I, uh, when I was in college, I did a bachelor's degree in physical education. I wanted to be a gym teacher when I grew up. And one of the classes I took at the University of Calgary uh, was a class on diving. And I know some of you are going, seriously, diving? I took microbiology and you took diving? And I'll say, yeah, sucks for you. I took diving. And in this class, uh, the instructor, one of the things he had us do in the very first week of class is he says, you've got to go off the 10-meter platform this week. And we're like, you've got to be kidding me. You climb the first set of steps, and you climb the second set of steps, climb the third set of steps, by like the 12th set of steps, you're at the 10-meter platform. <laughs> my first reaction was, my head should never be this close to a rafters in a room where I've got to go that quickly down to the main level. But when your head's up there, you're looking over the edge, and you're going... Uh Uh-uh. And our instructor said, there's only one way to do this for the very first time. He said, it's called a running screamer. (laughs) And he says, you need to just commit, run as fast as you can so you can't stop, and then just launch. And when you do, it's seconds before you hit the water and you pray you hit somewhat vertically when you make contact. Now, there's people in my class who got up to the top of the 10-meter platform and they're like... And then two minutes later, they're like... Five minutes later... Can you appreciate that the longer you're on the top without committing to going over, the harder it is to do it, right? The longer you're staring at that water without jumping, the less likely you are to jump. Here's the point. Some of you need to do a running screamer with God today. Some of you need to just commit to doing the hard thing because it's not getting any easier the longer you prolong it, okay? Point number one, keep short accounts with God. Point number two is this. When you confess to God, don't just do it quickly friends do it accurately God knows the sin you committed you know the sin you committed but sometimes confessing it to God in plain language can be surprisingly difficult you see there's a tendency in all of us to kind of dress up the parts of ourselves that we're not particularly proud of said another way we're pretty good at spinning the truth okay now my question for you to consider this morning is this Are you completely honest with God in your prayers, right? When you pray to God, do you try to make yourself look better than you are? Because we do this with people, right? Why do we think we don't do this with God in the same way? God wants authentic prayer from you. Transparent, vulnerable, direct prayer from you. And let me give you a couple of examples, right? Authentic confession is not, Lord, I'm feeling a certain amount of disconnect from my life partner. From some of you, it might be, Lord, my marriage absolutely stinks right now. I'm feeling trapped, and I'm terrified that it's going to stay that way. For some of you, it's not, Lord, sometimes I feel my thought life straying just a little when I hit the power button on the computer. No, for some of you, it's, Lord, every time I turn on my laptop, it feels like an absolute war to not go straight to that porn site that I feel is calling my name. For some of you, it's not, Lord, I feel I put too great an emphasis on money. No, for some of you, it's, Lord, I'm absolutely disgusted by this, but the reality in my life is that money right now gives me more pleasure than you. And I hate that about myself I'm ashamed of that but this is me being real money brings me more pleasure than you right now would you please help me to change that would you change that reality in my life guys when you confess to the Lord when you pray to him don't marinate your prayers don't season them or coat them in spice don't try to make them prettier than they are come to God in your reality plain spoken If there's healing in you calling your sin what it is, be raw with God. Now, let's move on. Verse 6. David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. David says, let everyone pray while he may be found. Guys, he means pray to him right now when you have the chance. And he says at some point in time, the waters are gonna rise. You have to assume that he's talking about the days of Noah, when people had plenty of chances to repent and to turn back to God, but they didn't. And the rains came, and the waters rose, and it was too late. Guys, you have an opportunity this morning to make things right with God. And verse six is telling us, do it while you have the chance. And I love what he says in verse seven. He says, you are my hiding place, right? You are my covering. You are my protection. Kind of like Noah's ark. He's saying, guys, it's safe here. When I open up my hands, when I open up my lapel and I confess to you the ugliest, the dirtiest, the darkest parts of my life, when I do that, I know that God will take it away and that I'll be forgiven. Guys, God knows everything about you and he accepts you right where you're at. But he does want you to come honestly and transparently and to come clean. Now in verse eight, the voice of this psalm It kind of changes it's sort of like God himself picks up the pen and decides to write a couple verses of the psalm himself see if you can catch this verse eight says I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go I will counsel you with my eye on you now I love the promise of verse 7 he says I will protect you from trouble but it would be kind of incomplete if it were not accompanied by the gift of direction which he offers in verse 8 What good would it be, for example, if he guarded us from destruction, but he didn't tell us which way to go? And then he goes on to verse 9. This gets entertaining. He says, do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed, in other words, controlled, with a bit and bridle, or they will not stay near you. Psalm 32 is all about us staying near God. It's about coming to him in prayer and in confession. And in verse 9, we see this metaphorical language that's somewhat less than flattering. Uh, it's a little painful to read, but I think the analogy is the right one. God compares the stubborn people, like myself, to mules. Now, stay with me on this metaphor, this analogy, for just a moment. Picture that all of God's people are animals on a farmyard. Right? All of us are animals on God's farmyard. And God cares for his animals with food and with shelter and protection. But there's one beast on God's farm that gives him an awful time the mule according to verse 9 it says that he's stupid right to unsugar this this is the mules without understanding and also says that, that the mule is stubborn right good combination stupid and stubborn right because the mule must be controlled with bit and bridle now the way that God likes to get his animals into the barn for food and for shelter and provision is by teaching the animals their personal name and then simply calling them home to the barn, right? We can see from verse 8 it says, I will instruct you. I will teach you the way you should go. So God just simply wants to call us and give us instructions for how we should go. But the mule doesn't respond to this sort of direction. Why? Because he's stupid and stubborn. So how does God then instruct or how does then God provide for this particular creature? Well, he institutes A bit and bridle to, let's say, strongly encourage obedience. And if you could just follow me on my take on this metaphor for a bit, let me draw out this analogy for you. God gets in his pickup truck, he goes out to the field, sees the mule, puts the bit and bridle, he fixes it into the mule's mouth, and then hitches the mule to the pickup truck, and then drags the mule back to the barn, stiff legged, undoubtedly snorting the whole way in rebellion until he gets back to the barn. Now that's not how God wants his animals to come to him for blessing, but my friends, when the needed provision that we all need is available only through the farmer, what choice does he have? What's my point? What's the point of verse nine? It's don't be a mule. I was gonna say don't be a jackass, but I wasn't sure you could say that in church this morning, so the point is don't be a mule, okay? Verses three and four, are very clear that David is in mule state in verses three and four before he learned to pray. Look at this with me. It says, when I kept silent about my sin, it says, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. So here's David out in the middle of the field, stubborn as can be, refusing to acknowledge his need. He's stiff-legged, his heels are dug in, he's doing it his way. I don't know why David is unrepentant at this time. Maybe he's got a little big for his britches, right? After all, this guy was the king of Israel, right? So maybe he's like, I'm the king of this place. I kind of write the laws in this country. I don't need to repent. Maybe he's feeling a little big for his britches. Or maybe it's just purely that he has lived and walked closely to God, and he was familiar with the intimacy with God that he knew, and he was so embarrassed at what he had done with Bathsheba that he couldn't even fathom the idea of acknowledging this before God. But either way, his unconfessed sin took a very heavy toll on him. And then here comes the pickup truck in verse four. It says, for day and night, your, heavy hand, your, sorry, your, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. Guys, when David acted like a mule, God put the bridle of suffering on him and dragged him back to the barn. Now, the way to not be a mule is to humble yourself. It's to, according to verse four, verse five, confess your sins to the Lord. It's to acknowledge them before God and to walk back to the barn on your own. Verse six purely says, pray to him while he may be found. Guys, this is the alternative to mule-like behavior. And I know if you're in a state of rebellion against God, and it's, you've allowed it to become prolonged in your life and you're feeling at odds with your maker or you're just feeling a sense of silence or distance between you and your maker. It's time to do some relational repair. And again, I, I don't come in front of you as one who's totally conquered this and has absolutely figured this out. I know what it's like. I'm a fellow struggler. I've been through prolonged seasons where the Lord and I have not been close and I know what that feels like. This morning there's a chance for you to make amends and to deal with this while the Lord may be found. Now verse 10 says many are the sorrows of the wicked but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Read that last part again. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You may not feel steadfast love surrounding you because of how you feel right now, because of the sin you've allowed into your life and have not dealt with it, but you need to know that the steadfast love is nonetheless surrounding you. Case in point, parable of the lost son. We call him the prodigal son. When he rebelled against his father, when he acted unjustly, when he engaged in a life of debauchery and wandered away from his authority... He discovered his lowly state and he wandered back. He decided, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go home. I'm going to make it right with dad. And the father, we read in the story, is not just holding his arms out wide for the son when he sees the son coming back, but the father rushes to him and meets him along the way. That is the love of the father that wants to make things right with us as well. He's waiting for you to come home. Verse 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. The NASB says, sing to the Lord, all you who are upright in heart. Now, I'm going to invite the ushers to go ahead and uh, head back and grab the elements for communion. Uh, I'm going to talk about this last verse here. And uh, if you're an usher serving communion this morning, I'd invite you to go ahead and serve it right now. I'm going to be continuing on in my uh, discussion as we do this. Uh, We're going to invite the worship band out as well. Just a personal reflection on verse 11. It says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. When I was a young believer and would read a verse like that, my inclination was, Oh yeah, he's talking about somebody else. He, he's definitely not talking about me when he says, oh righteous. I was very, very aware of my shortcomings and my sins. I still carried up for years and years the shame and the guilt of the things I had done in the course of my life. But you need to know that when verse 11 says, rejoice, O oh, righteous, that he's talking about you and he's talking about me. Because when you received Christ, as your Lord and your savior, Jesus now becomes your provision, right? When you became a Christian, you were justified before a holy God. Justification is when God declares the sinner sinless and treats him as such. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. You might be thinking, wow, I sure don't feel like Christ. Yep, because you're in a continual process of becoming more like him. That's called sanctification. It's a long, drawn out process that requires your continual surrender to the Lord so that he can be at work changing you. It's a long journey and you're never fully finished. But the Lord is at work in you and he needs you to continue yielding your life, bending a knee to him, cleansing you in ongoing fashion of your sins so that he can make you more like Christ. Now is that worth singing about this morning? Is that worth celebrating this morning? Absolutely. And we're going to finish off our time doing exactly that. But before we get there, we're going to take the bread and the cup in our hands. And what I want us to do during this time is I want us to look at a verse in the Bible. You don't need to flip there because you've probably got some stuff in your hands. But let me, let me talk you through a verse that for me was very personal. Uh, I would almost consider this verse to be my life verse. It's very closely correlated with Psalm 32. And... This verse made probably a bigger mark on my life than any other I've come across just because of my own theological misunderstanding when I became a believer. You see, when I first accepted the Lord and I would engage in sin, I felt like the Lord wanted nothing to do with me. Sure, he had forgiven the sins before I became a Christian, but now that I'm a Christian I'm still sinning, he must want nothing to do with me because now I'm a hypocrite. And I would hide from the Lord. I would would intentionally hide from him. I'd, I'd linger outside the throne room wondering if it's okay to go in because I thought God hated me. And I came across Hebrews four sixteen. It says this, let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The man who explained this verse to me said, Mikey, why are you not praying to the Lord? Why are you not making things right? I said, God hates me because I'm covered in sin. He showed me this verse. He said, how are you supposed to approach the throne of grace? I looked at it and I I said, it says with confidence. He said, yep. He said, "When when are you supposed to approach the throne of grace? I looked at the verse and it said, in my time of need. He said, when's your time of need? He said, is it when you're living well, when you're conscious that you're doing everything right? Or is your time of need when you're mindful that you're not? That you feel the weight of sin on your shoulders? I said, it's, it's when I, it says, it's, I'm supposed to come in my time of need. He said, yeah. And when you get there, how are you received? What do you find when you enter the throne room? I said, it says I will receive mercy and I will find grace to help me. He said, exactly. And with tears in my eyes, I prayed and I said, thank you, Lord, I didn't understand. I was hiding outside the throne room because I didn't think I could come in. He accepts you. He loves you where you're at. With all your uncleanness, with all the stuff you haven't dealt with, he wants to be right with you this morning. Would you do business with the Lord this morning? Take the bread in your hand. Lord, your body was broken for us. On the cross of Calvary, you laid down your life not because you had to. Lord, you're the only one who has lived that has never transgressed, that has never broken apart or fallen away. You're the only one who's lived the perfect life and yet you chose to go to the cross on our behalf so that we could be restored to a holy God. Lord, the bread we hold in our hand is a reflection of your body broken for us. Would you take the bread? And Lord, that your blood was spilled on that cross. The Bible tells us in plain language that our salvation is found in the blood. Lord, you chose this path, you chose this cross and you bled on our behalf to do that which we could not do for ourselves. Lord, we come before you this morning not only grateful as a people, but Lord, help us to live in a way where we say thanks and we come quickly back to you to acknowledge our iniquity and our shortcoming. Would you take the cup this morning?
1: Respond together. Once we were lost, once we were lost, and so far away, wandering in darkness. Covered in shame Without you Without you Now we are found By a love that is stronger No longer blind We can see all along It was you It was you the blood, we are forgiven forever. Forgiven forever, and the victory is won. Jesus is risen, love is overcome. We are forgiven. It was me, it was me, and after the heavens and earth pass away, we'll stand together with one voice. And sing.
0: Fellowship, I have one word for you this morning, Selah, Selah. I want you to dwell on this message this morning. I want you to spend some time searching your soul, examining where you're at with the Lord, looking at your own coat to decide if there's anything over here that needs to be dragged out into the light and dealt with finally. Would you take the time today quiet time with the Lord, to restore any disrepair in that relationship, to make things right, because you'll find that when you do, he will forgive the guilt of your sin, and you will restore the intimacy, that sweet fellowship that's available to all who are in Christ. If you wanna pray this morning, I think there's gonna be some people that'll be up front if you wanna pray with some folks, but otherwise, trust you to have a wonderful Sunday May you enjoy the grace that's offered to all of us who are in Christ.
1: Have a great day.